picking up at verse 20, chapter 27, verse 62, and reading on through chapter 28. Next day after the preparation, the head of the Kohanim and the Purushim went together to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said when he was still alive, after three days I'll be raised. Therefore, order that the grave be made secure till the third day. Otherwise, the Talmudim may come and steal him away and say to the people he was raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you may have your guard. Uh, go ahead. Go and make the grave as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the grave secure by sealing the stone and putting a guard on watch. Now, after Shabbat, towards dawn on Sunday, Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam went to see the grave. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of Adonai came down from heaven and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so terrified at him that they trembled and became de like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Yeshua who was executed on the stake. He is not here because he's been raised, just as he said. Come and look at the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell the Tamidim. He has been raised from the dead, and now he's going to Galal ahead of you. You will see him there. Now I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly, frightened and yet filled with joy. And now they ran to give the news to his Tamidim. And suddenly Yeshua met them and said, Shalom. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they fell down in front of him. And then Yeshua said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galal, and they'll see me there. And as they were going, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the head Kohanim everything that had happened. And they met with the elders. And after discussing the matter, they gave the soldiers a sizable sum of money and said to them, Tell people his Talmudim came during the night and stole his body. While we were sleeping, and if the governor's here of it, we'll put things right with him and keep you from getting into trouble. And the soldiers took the money and did as they were told. And this story has spread about the Judeans till this very day. So the eleven Talmudim went to the hill in Galal where Yeshua had told them to go. And when they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him. But some hesitated. And Yeshua came and told, talked with them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, immersing them into the reality of the Father and the Son and the Ruch HaKadash, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. All right, I'm going to just take a little step back to... Our friend Joseph. Jewish law forbade the taking, of, forbade the body of an executed person to be left hanging all night. It had to be buried by sundown when the Jewish day ended. You must not leave his body on a tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day. And so this was particularly charged upon the Israelites when one of their number had been hung on a tree after his execution. This, of course, applied to Jesus. His body needed to be taken down and buried, but none of his relations owned the property in a tomb in Jerusalem since they all came from Galilee. In this situation stepped a man who had not been heard of before now in the gospel, 
Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin or council, so Mark and Luke tells us, and Luke adds a good and upright man. Matthew's emphasis on his wealth may draw our mind back to Isaiah 53:9, where the suffering servant would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the riches in his death. He came from Arimathea, which is unknown, but which some of the ancient commentators identified with Ramathium, the home of the childless Hannah, where a prayer for a son was answered and the place where the prophet Samuel was buried. Matthew tells us that Joseph had been discipled by Jesus. Allusions to this show us how much material lies between and behind the gospel story. Now, Jesus had made a personal disciple of this rich member of the Sanhedrin. Why then did he not stand up for Jesus at his trial? For all we know, he may have done, but in all probability, he was not there. It's fairly clear that Jesus was brought before a hastily summoned, illegal night trial of the Sanhedrin. And there's no reason to suppose that all 71 members were present or even informed. Caiaphas was determined to get a condemnation, and he would have not been above packing the court with his followers and failing to inform those he knew would be sympathetic to Jesus until the formal meeting for the ratification of the sentence the next morning when it would have been too late for them to affect the outcome. Maybe Joseph had protested, but in vain. Luke says he had not consented to their decision and action. Clearly, fear played a part in his caution. At all events, this man stepped forward and courageously approached the governor, Pilate, asking for the body of Jesus. Bodies of crucified people were normally thrown into a trench in a field. Only one body of a crucified man has been found in Palestine. That's because he was well-connected and his bones were buried, complete with a spike through the wrist and ankle in the ossuary. He was executed some 30 years after Jesus. Joseph did a courageous thing. He braved the governor who would have been in a foul mood at the end of this traumatic day. He was prepared to face the hostility of his colleagues in the synagogue. He sided with a crucified criminal. What's more, he gave him his own grave. So that brings us up to where we finished last time. Joseph goes to Pilate. He gets permission to bury the body. He quickly buries it or quickly entombs it in his own tomb. The reason for quickly was because of timing. And where we ended was that the women at the end of verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. They were waiting till the end of the Sabbath because then they had to reopen the tomb and do the proper preparation of Jesus' body where there hadn't previously been time. So that brings us up to where we are. Now what's interesting about this was already noted by Michael Green the fact is that this is really a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9 where we read, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. So he was hung between two criminals, one of which he saved, and then he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, in his, his own personal tomb that had been prepared because of his wealth. But... What I find most interesting in the next couple of verses is that the next day, one of the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. His enemies were more aware of what he said in this context than his followers were. 
Now, they didn't believe he was going to be resurrected, but they knew that that's what he said he was going to do. The disciples weren't hanging around the tomb waiting to see it happen. The Pharisees were concerned the disciples were going to rip off the body and then say it had occurred. Now, they, because, again, they didn't necessarily believe this was going to happen. Um, you know, this is, um, and they were so concerned. Now, these are the religious leaders, the chief priests. These are the Pharisees, those who had been critical of Jesus because of the fact that he didn't keep the law under their guidelines. And here they are. They're so concerned that they're going out on the high Sabbath, because this is a special Sabbath. We read in John 19.31, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. That's because it was the Sabbath of Passover. Because the Jews didn't want any bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So here we have the Pharisees and the chief priests going to a Gentile, which in itself was probably distasteful. And they're doing it on the high Sabbath because they're so afraid that the issue that, you know, the disciples are going to come and steal the body and they will not. They'll still be dealing with the issue of Jesus even after they've had him killed. That's how paranoid they are. So they run to to um, Pilate and say, this imposter, this guy claiming to be the Messiah. You know, we need his tomb sealed and guarded so the disciples don't rip off the body. Now, of course. They were greatly overestimating the shape the disciples in because the disciples were in such poor shape at this point. It wouldn't even have occurred to them to do this. They were so demoralized. But so there he's given them credit where credit is certainly not due. Anyway, so they want to make sure this doesn't happen. And Pilate, who's really got to be fed up with this whole thing by now, says, okay. So he says, you can have some guards. You can seal the tomb. And probably these were... Roman guards, certainly a bunch of demoralized fishermen wouldn't have been able to get past them. And so he applies, he says, okay, you can have them. And what's fascinating about this is now you've got Gentile professional soldiers guarding the tomb who will be the witnesses to the fact that Christ is resurrected. And have to lie through their teeth. But now his enemies become the very witnesses to the events that occur. I wonder down the line. Yeah, they lied because they got paid off. But I wonder as over the years as they were thinking about what happened. I wonder what happened to them. Whether any of them actually got saved because they had actually because of what they'd seen. Now, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing doing of late, and that is we're going to jump around between the Gospels because there's a lot of events. They happen quite quickly uh, in the middle of the chaos, so the order even is a little bit unclear because each of the Gospels tells something that the other Gospels don't tell about everything that occurs from, let's say, the point the guards are posted on. Um, for one thing, we know by going to the Synoptic Gospels that there were more than two women there, even though Matthew only names the two. Um, for example, in Mark 6, uh, 16, 1, we read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, 
and Salome brought spices so they might anoint the body of Jesus. And then in Luke um, 24.10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who with them told this to the disciples. So there was more of the women around than, than Matthew would lead us to believe. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, from the standpoint of the witnesses, what's the, what's the one event that's missing from all of this that none of the witnesses observed? The resurrection. By the time they got there, Jesus was already gone. No, nobody, because the tomb wasn't open so he could get out. So nobody, including the soldiers, witnessed the resurrection itself. They all witnessed the results of the resurrection. So the body was there. And then the next thing anybody knows, it's gone until Jesus starts appearing to people. You know, we have the earthquake. We have the angels. But they were there to open the tomb so people could see it was empty. Not so Jesus could escape. And so, for example, Mary Magdalene didn't wait around uh, for the tomb to be open. As soon as she saw the angel and he said that Jesus wasn't there, we read early the uh, first day of the week, while it was dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So she gets there really early. The tomb is open. She doesn't even look. She assumes the body's, or at least we're not told she looks. She assumes he's not there. Doesn't see the angel. Doesn't get the news bulletin. Runs off and tells John and Peter the body's gone. So now as for the women who remain there, um, you know, we we read about them. You jump over to Mark um, 16, 4 through 8 and read. But when they looked and they saw this, that the stone was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So now you get the second group, the ones that went further in. They see the angel. The angel says, Jesus isn't here. Go and tell the others that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. And they're, they're in shock. That's, that's how we put it psychologically speaking. They can't even, you know, they're supposed to go and tell. They're, they're so overwhelmed. I won't use the word excited. They're so overwhelmed that they can't, they can't tell anybody. They're just freaked. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know how you rap. And remember, now, the Holy Spirit is starting to crack open the mental doors. Remember, because they had been told, again, shows you what happens sometimes when people hear God's word and are not connected with God. 
the his enemies understood he said he was going to re- be resurrected. They acted accordingly. His followers, the Holy Spirit, had sort of hidden the understanding of what Jesus said from them, so they didn't expect it. They were beaten down and, you know, it had all come to an end, as far as they were concerned. Now the women, interestingly enough, who all the women get the announcements first, um, are so overwhelmed by the whole thing, they don't know what to say. Uh, I won't make that joke. Anyway, um, and as for the poor guards, um, you know, they didn't sign up for a miraculous event. Uh, they just signed up to guard the doors and hope to keep anybody from breaking in and stealing the bodies. But what happened? They pass out. You know, the, the, the women, the angels have the message for them. Jesus is resurrected and now the work of the gospel begins because what's the gospel? Christ died, was buried, and resurrected according to the scriptures. MacArthur um, notes, uh, scripture makes it very clear that he was also raised by the power of the Father. It's the Father and the Holy Spirit who are involved in Jesus' resurrection. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we therefore buried with, we are, were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Um, in Galatians 1, 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Uh, and Peter says in Peter 1, 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the Father resurrected Christ from the dead. MacArthur and goes on, and the Holy Spirit. Paul again in Romans eight eleven said, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who now lives in you. So just as the triunity of God was involved at Christ's, at the beginning of his ministry, well, really at his birth, but at the beginning of his ministry, when he is baptized by John, we see the triunity present, he is involved at the end of his earthly ministry with his resurrection where both the Father and the Holy Spirit are involved with the resurrection of Christ. The doors, the doors were closed. The tomb was still closed when he was resurrected. God does not, has not told us the specifics of the actual act of the resurrection itself. We don't know. Back to Greek Orthodoxy or Russian, or Russian Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy. We glory in the mystery. We don't need to know. Okay. If we needed to know, he would have told us. So the fact is, and and now, Peter, who's getting on it, and no, he's not that old yet. Guess who arrives first on the scene? Uh, the men. So after they did get the word, remember from Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to run. So in John 3 through 9, we read, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John couldn't, John had to stick that in. I outran him. 
<laughs> he bent over and looked at the stri- in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. But then Simon Peter, who was always rambunctious, oh, it doesn't say that here, who was behind him arrived and went, went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, keep rubbing it in, also went inside and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So what did they do? They ran in. They saw the linens neatly piled up. What was their thinking? Probably they weren't thinking much at all at that point. They were probably shut down. If any thought crossed their mind, somebody stole the body because they did not get it. Now, Mary, remember, Mary ran out before she heard the angel. What did Mary say? They've taken away my Lord. She thought the body was stolen. That's what she would have told Peter and John. Not that he was resurrected because she hadn't been told that. So they went there to see if the body was actually missing. That was why they went. Not to see a miracle. By now, the other women and the angels are gone. Okay, so now you get the timing. The other women and the angels, the angels left. Actually, there were two of them from one of the other gospels. They've left. The women now have run off in a panic. And when they come down, they're going to run to the group as a whole and let them know what's going on. Probably passing on the road. Peter and John going the other way, headed for the tomb. They arrived there. They haven't gotten any supernatural messages. And so they think the body's been taken. Okay, so now by putting all the Gospels together, this is the picture we're getting so far. And what did they do? They were, you know, this was the final straw, right? Jesus had died. He'd been crucified. His body had been taken down and buried. And now his body's gone. And they're done. They're finished. They go home. They're really depressed. So now <coughs> to calm down excuse me, the women. And so they will actually tell the disciples what's going on. On the way back, along the way, uh, apparently Jesus appears to the women um, and they rejoice and then they, and the, now they really get it and they go on to tell the disciples. Meanwhile, Mary remains back at the tomb. I guess she went back after, you know, catching up with John and Peter, because we read again, John tells us in John 20, 12 to 18. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying and she wept and she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus body had been, one at the head of the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold me, hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to tell my disciple, my, to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. 
And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and he is, and she told them he had said these things to her. Unfortunately, the disciples were males. They were depressed and weren't up to dealing with what they thought were a bunch of hysterical women. Because their reactions were, they didn't believe. In Mark 11 through uh, 16, 11, and 13, we read, But when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. And the, he ran, the men in, uh, on the road to Emmaus, these returned and reported to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Okay, So now we've got the eyewitnesses, but what the, what's the disciples' reaction? Eh, you people are just seeing what you want to see. You know, you're stressing out and having hallucinations. Uh, you, you. And by the way, and these were the people that were supposed to have stolen Jesus' body? They're functioning so well they could have done that? I don't think so. No. But, you know, that's what the chief priests and Pharisees needed to believe. You know, when the guards came back to them, what did they tell them? They told them what they saw. There was an earthquake. There was a flash. There was something supernatural going on. And the priest, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders said, okay, here's the money. The disciples came and stole the body. You believe what you want to believe. Don't confuse me with the facts. This is why I think it was, um, uh, I can't remember who the author was, uh, but the book title, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith to be an evolutionist. It takes too much faith to talk about believing in something with no facts. They knew what was true, but they couldn't afford for it to be true. And that's the sad thing. When you hear these pop atheists who are not exactly, and this isn't just to be offensive, but they're not exactly intellectual giants. There have been philosophical atheists that have been a lot more intelligent about their atheism than the current pop bunch. But when you hear the anger and the vitriol that are coming out of these people, it makes you wonder whether at some level they know the truth and that's why they're so angry because they're trying to convince themselves of a lie. You know, as Christians, if we're really committed to the gospel and love, we give out the gospel and if somebody rejects it, we feel sorry for them. We don't get angry about it. It's the people that have something to lose by believing something different that seem to get so angry. So they bribed the guards to disseminate a lie. And you understand, they said, you know, if the governor hears about this, which I don't know how he couldn't, uh, we'll cover for you. In other words, they were going to go and tell the governor they paid him off to lie. Because let's face it, if Roman soldiers actually let a bunch of G Galilean fishermen steal Jesus' body when they were on guard, uh, their life expectancy would have been cut very short because they were already at the back end of duty. There wouldn't be any place worse to send them, so they probably would have been put to death for letting this happen. So the only reason, besides the money, <laughs> that they were willing to do this is that they were promised that if it came out, uh, you know, these guys would explain to the governor that basically they bribed him to lie. Man, that still doesn't sound like a really intelligent thing to do, but whatever. Like politics today. <laughs>
So, now, the women were told that Jesus would meet the disciples in Galilee. And as you go to the end, that's where they finally end up. That's where the ascension occurs. Where his ministry starts is where he starts gathering the disciples is in effect where the first round ends. But they appear, he appears to a number of people before that final appearance in Galilee. For example, first off, um, it was, MacArthur says, it was not that Jesus would first appear to the disciples in Galilee because he manifested himself several times before that. He appeared to Peter. Um, Oh, missed one verse. It was um, finally, uh, it was also Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told his disciples, but they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So why did he first appear to the men to Peter? Well, actually, it looks like he appeared to the guys on the road, but appeared to Peter because Peter was the de facto spokesman. Um, in Luke 24, 34, we read, uh, after he appears to Peter, it's true, the Lord is risen and he has appeared to Simon. So Jesus appeared to Peter. Then um, he appeared, as we've already seen, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke uh, 24, uh, 15, which we already read, and in Mark uh, 16, 12. Afterwards, Jesus appeared uh, in different form to the two of them while they were walking in the country. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. So he made himself known to these two guys who were walking along. We don't even know who they were, but they were walking along discussing what happened. And then Jesus took them from Genesis to Malachi, I mean Malachi, and showed them, you know, where you could find him all through scripture. And then after that, suddenly they realized it's Jesus. So, even though Jesus is recognizable after the resurrection, it appears in some way he has the ability to allow himself to be recognized or not recognized as he chooses. How does that work? I don't know. Then he appears to the ten disciples. We read this in John twenty nineteen. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now they're finally getting it. Okay. But then there's poor old Thomas, who for whatever reason was out buying pizza or something and wasn't there with the bunch. And so the 11 disciples, eight days later, see, time is going on. There's quite a bit of time involved in his post-resurrection appearances. And we read of how he appeared when, with the 11 disciples in John 20, 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And also proved himself to Thomas. So now he's appeared to all the women, all of the inner circle. And then finally, okay, in John 21, 1 is when he, it's they're now back in Galilee because now they've all headed out because that's where he says they needed to go. And afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea on Tiberias. That's one of my favorite sections because it shows we get to eat after we die because he was sitting down and having a, a fish fry with the disciples after he gets them, reveals himself to them and sits down and cooks. And they all, And again, it shows that not only in the resurrection do we know one another, 
right? But that we fellowship with one another, enjoy one another. I mean, this is a very human scene with the resurrected Christ amongst his disciples sitting down and having a meal with him. And part of the reason for this is it was so important, understanding where heresies would arise later, that everyone understands that Jesus was physically resurrected. Thomas touches him. He sits down and eats with the disciples. This is not some kind of vague, mystic Christ spirit now having removed itself from the body of Jesus kind of a deal. It's Jesus is resurrected, is recognizable. He carries the scars of the crucifixion by choice because we'll all be healed of whatever. But he will continue to carry those scars through eternity, I'm sure, because that is a reminder to us of why we get to be there. But it's a very, very real, very physical resurrection. This is not the metaphysical, invisible second coming because the Jehovah's Witnesses kept getting tired of talking about his coming and him never showing up. So finally decided the last time he showed up invisibly because that way they solved their problem. <laughs> it's not that kind of deal. And, and uh, you read there's a couple of books written by over the years, apologists who had been lawyers and so examined the evidence for themselves because they were atheistic. They examined the evidences of Scripture and other evidences for Christ's resurrection. And the evidence is so compelling, the nature of the witnesses is such, that they were forced to accept the, the truth of what's here. People reject it because they want to reject it, not because it's rejectable. And so MacArthur goes on, but Jesus' supreme appearance to the disciples was to be in Galilee where he has appeared to more than 500 at one time and where he would commission the 11 to apostolic ministry. Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is saying, at the time I'm writing to Corinthians, you can still go and talk to many of those 500 who saw the resurrected Jesus and get first-hand testimony because the majority of them are still alive. So keep in mind, when Paul's writing, when at least probably the Gospel of Mark was written, you still had people, living people, who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. First-hand knowledge. That's pretty good. See, one of the arguments is, would people die for a life? We see martyrs who are willing to die, strap bombs on and kill themselves. But it's because they believe in what they're doing. Would the, would the disciples have stolen the body knowing it was a lie, disseminated what they knew was a lie, be willing to die for a lie? That's it. They would have all had to be psychotic to do that. Okay, It's one thing to die for a lie that you believe is true. It's another thing to die for a lie that you are the one that has created. Okay, That's, that's where this whole business about dying for, for a lie comes in. Of course they wouldn't. And they wouldn't. And they would have known if it was a lie. But here we've got large groups of people, 500 people. How many were in the inner core? 11. And four or five women. And now you got 500 people at some point who see the resurrected Jesus. 
we, we talked about last week, Christ's work, his payment for our sins, okay, that takes place on the cross. That's why he says it is finished. Now, God and the Holy Spirit take and put their stamp of this is true and everything that has happened and everything that has gone before is true and we know it is true and you can know it is true because we have put our seal on it by resurrecting Christ and that is the validation, the proof, the testimony to everything that's gone. It's the promise to us that this is what we have to look forward to. That's not where our sins were taken care of. That was taken care of on the cross. But this is where our hope is presented. The proof of all and, the, and our hope for a resurrection and for eternity. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, where he says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are more to be pitied than all men. There are those who present themselves as Christians that say, eh, the resurrection doesn't occur, but it really doesn't matter because it's about Jesus' teachings and the good things. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Why do you call yourself Christians? Paul isn't saying here that we die in our sins if he wasn't resurrected because of the not lack of resurrection. He's saying the, without the resurrection, the work would not have been fulfilled. That is the proof of everything that's come before. And what he's saying is it's not enough just to believe in something that makes you live a better life. If that something is a lie. See, and that's that's a very important point. When I was younger, so much younger than oh, the reality was, I said, well, from a pragmatic standpoint, as long if people believe in something that makes them better people, at least it makes the world a nicer place. Well, there may be some some kind of truth to that, but the fact of the matter is. If if our morality and our good life is grounded in a lie, then our whole life is meaningless and a lie, and it's a fraud. This is why it doesn't matter how sincerely people believe in their religion. If their religion is a lie, who cares? It doesn't matter. Because when they die, well, we know where are they going to end up. It's futile, and it means all of us that are going out spreading the gospel are wasting our time. What are we doing here? We could be home in bed. Well, my dog wouldn't let me sleep in this late, but anyway. Out, whatever you want to do. Some people are sick enough that they'd be watching sports. I don't know. It's meaningless if the resurrection didn't occur, because that means if the resurrection didn't occur, then when Christ died on the cross, he was just another person dying on the cross. And his death meant nothing, except kind of sad that some nice, innocent guy got killed. But a lot of that's happened over the years. See, and that's, that's Paul's point. He says we must have the resurrection 
Because that is God's stamp that all the rest of this is true. That is why we can live in security in this world and not have to worry about the craziness going on in Washington or Sacramento because God is in control and we know that because Christ is resurrected. So the underlying proof of everything is the resurrection. And so... That's what it all comes down to. And Jesus made sure that nobody who approaches the evidence with an open mind and with a willingness to hear the Holy Spirit can do anything other than be convinced because the evidence is compelling. But as we all know, and I think the concurrent state of science proves this, it doesn't matter how compelling the evidence is, the most brilliant minds around are still going to choose to believe what they want to believe for their reasons because our intellect, our cognitive abilities also fell in the fall. We were watching Night at the Museum too. Fun film. And I like to watch the whistles and bells. That's what I call all the other documentaries about how they make it. So they had one, not surprisingly, on the Smithsonian. And there are all these brilliant department heads at the Smithsonian, they loved this movie because it was a good marketing tool for them, talking about how their department studies these things to show how human beings evolved or how life evolved or how the universe evolved. And they're standing there as brilliant scientists with a straight face talking about this stuff as if it was true. Well, now, as science progresses, we learn more things. In the 1800s, you can understand why Darwin might have come up with some of this stuff because he didn't have some of the tools today. Today we have the tools to know this stuff is nonsense. But here are brilliant scientific minds with a straight face telling us it's true because they need it to be true. I would have put the whole film, including the documentaries, in the fantasy section. It's not even good science fiction anymore. So it doesn't matter what the evidence shows if people are committed to not Believing it. This is why people are not saved by apologetics. We need to be able to do apologetics. We need to be able to tell the gospel. We need to be able to answer the questions. But they are saved by the Holy Spirit softening their hearts so they're willing to believe what they hear. You can be the most brilliant orator around. You can have all the cute tools, like the roadrunner tools, where you take the unbeliever and you take them logically in their own thinking direction until they look and they're standing over nothing. And then that... But the point is, if they're not open to the Holy Spirit, if they are not willing to accept truth, it doesn't matter. They are not going to listen. And if they do, you do not have to be the world's greatest intellect. You can be a five-year-old, six-year-old kid and still lead somebody to the Lord if the Holy Spirit's moving them. I remember back in the day, Jeanette was one of five teachers I had teaching a fifth grade class. And one of the students was a little person, not just a little kid, a little kid, little person. And all the, it was amazing to me because all the kids accepted him and helped him and none of the teasing you would normally expect for their kids. And he said to the Lord and he was so blessed he dragged his entire family to church and they all got saved. Yeah. Why? Because he was shown love by other kids. Whew. Interesting concept. But it was the Holy Spirit moving. So don't become discouraged when you witness to people because people are going to be saved the Lord will use you in the process and he will use you in any case because if they hear the truth and reject it, then they're condemned because of that. So the evidence is here. It is irrefutable. 
And so the gospel has already started. The women went back and told the disciples he was resurrected. But now it moves into formality with Jesus instructing them. Let me read this last passage here. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I don't know whether that was some of the eleven or some of the five hundred. The language would seem to say. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here's what we call the Great Commission. What isn't the Great Commission? It is not simply a call to go out and get more notches on your I got people saved belt. It's not just about seeing people saved. He didn't say go out and get people saved. He said go out and make disciples. What is that? That is seeing people saved, but then seeing people grow. Seeing people mature, involved in that maturing process, is obedience to his commands, is loving the Father and loving others as he's commanded, as being part of what we'll see born in the next chapters in that as we move on, follow these events on into Acts with the forming of the church. That's what making disciples is. And so it, it's talking about that whole process. And he talks about his authority. He, re- he was God, but he receives a unique kind of glorification and authority to judge, to be the head of the church because of the cross and his resurrection. And that's a fulfillment of prophecy. In Daniel seven thirteen and 14, we read, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Daniel got the opportunity to look forward in time and to see Christ entering God's presence after the ascension and also seeing him given the authority that eventually is the authority we'll see him exercising in the millennial age and on into eternity. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about all authority under heaven and earth being given to him. Now he had it already. But now it is uniquely defined. Remember, each member of the triunity has specific roles at specific times. And when he says he will be with us to the end of the age, he's talking about our relationship with him, but he's also talking about the fact the Father would send another a comforter, the, the Holy Spirit, to empower the church in, by empowering each of us individually. But see, this is the promise of hope. This is where our hope is grounded. This is the resurrected Christ saying, 
You're not going to see me, as we'll see in Acts, but I will be there. And the same power that resurrected him is the power that we have access to. And so this is why we don't need to be panic-stricken, being so fearful of what's going on in the world, what's going on in our families, what's going on in our judges, our jobs, what's going on in the Sacramento Bee. We don't need to live with anxiety and fear. It doesn't mean we're unimpacted. Okay, we don't always make that clear by life. But it, we do not have to be overwhelmed by life because the same power that resurrected Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit, is available to us to live and be used by him to his glory. That's what we always keep coming back to. He does this for his glory so that we can live in a way that brings him glory, so that we can be used to see people saved to his glory. And when we are living for his glory, we are blessed by being able to bask in that glory. And the sad thing, and we'll talk about this on Wednesday nights starting in January when we talk about the cults, but the sad thing is you've got a lot of sincere people believing lies, but believing those lies because those lies are lies they want to believe. Okay, They're sincere, they're mistaken, but they believe what they believe because they want to believe it. And those who are sincerely seeking the truth, who if they hear the truth will turn to Christ, he will get his truth to them no matter where they are and no matter what they're entangled in, which is why we see followers of Islam coming to Christ, why we see followers of Buddha coming to Christ, why you see followers of the cults coming to Christ, because those who are more interested in truth than their system will find it. And sometimes we get to be part of that process by which they do. So, taking all of this into consideration, we need to live our lives in light of that commission. How are we living in a way that says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The fact of the matter is, as we support the church, we're doing this. As we witness to those around us, we are doing this. As we make decisions in our lives to be obedient and to worship the Lord, we are doing this. In any number of different ways, we're doing this. We're, we don't all have to go to Africa. My favorite missionary song, please don't send me to Africa. <laughs> I tried saying, please don't send me to Hawaii, but as I've noted, reverse psychology doesn't work on that. <laughs> but the reality is that we are witnesses. We are testimony to this reality and as we walk with the lord we are carrying out his injunction to go and make disciples